0: Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's show is University of Oregon Professor Stephen McKeon. Steve spent six years out of college working in finance for venture-backed startups before returning to graduate school and earning his PhD in finance in 2011. Blending his interest and experience, he focuses his research on corporate finance, M&A, security issuance, and most recently, crypto assets, where he has quickly become a leading academic authority in the nascent area. Our conversation starts with Steve's first job, smack into the teeth of the tech meltdown in 2000, and his subsequent roles at a winery and a drone company. We then turn to his work as an academic in the world of crypto assets, walking through the thesis for security tokens. Steve presents a case for the future of security tokens that is tangible and achievable, Now that the noise from storing cryptocurrency prices has died down, we can learn a lot from Steve about what blockchain technology may bring to investing in the years ahead. I hope you enjoy the show. And if you do, this week, if you happen to be in a married or committed relationship, and one night you turn to your partner and say, Hey, babe, what do you think? And they turn back and say, Sorry, hon, not tonight. I have a headache. Why not turn a lemon into lemonade by responding... I have a better idea. Let's listen to the Capital Allocators podcast together. You can snuggle up and share a night of stimulating intellectual bonding. Thanks so much for spreading the word to your partner. Please enjoy my conversation with Professor Stephen McKeon. Stephen, thanks so much for coming and joining me.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me. How'd you get
0: into academia?
1: It was a very sort of nonlinear route. I started my career in Silicon Valley. I was always interested in tech and moved down to Palo Alto, worked at a startup in San Carlos. This was sort of the height of the tech boom, like spring of 2000, like literally the peak. Of course, we all know what happened, right? So it all melted down over the next six to nine months, which actually was an extremely educational experience to be sort of inside one of these venture-backed firms and kind of watching everything implode from the inside. How would that feel? I had nothing to lose, right? I mean, I was in my early 20s and no dependents and I had to make rent. So that was sort of my biggest concern. There was a moment where when you first started, I was really amped up and excited and, you know, go team and everything. And then there was this moment I remember about probably about the summer of 2000, where it was like, I think the ship is sinking. And like, I think all these ships are sinking to some degree. And at that point, it was kind of like, do I move on? Or do I just sort of ride this out and watch it? And it seemed like I wanted to carry on, do the best I could, but also really like learn from the experience. And so I stayed there, not quite to the bitter end, but through several rounds of layoffs. And so I guess it felt educational in some ways. And also scary just because, you know, this whole, when you look at a lot of financial crises, they are wider spread geographically, right? They affect an entire nation. They infect the whole globe. This one was so acute In such a small, to some degree, it affected everything, but it really affected the peninsula. Like everything between San Francisco and San Jose was just in complete meltdown. Almost everybody I knew who was my age lost their job like within a six-month span. And so it was actually just sort of surreal. I mean, certainly had never experienced anything like it prior or since in
0: many ways. So were you a techie? Going in, or how did you end up getting yeah, in so the community? I was
1: not a software engineer. I was always studied economics and finance, but always had sort of an interest in tech. And so I knew that I wasn't going to be coding software, but I wanted to be around that space just because I thought, you know, the economics and, and the finance implications were so vast as we've seen play out over the last 20 years.
0: Okay. So the bubble bursts. Everyone you know is unemployed,
1: hanging out, having fun for a short period of time. Then what? Right. It feels like a vacation for about a week. Right. And, (laughs) you know, you play a bunch of video games or whatever. And then after a week, you're like, this is kind of boring. Like, I got to find something to do. So every morning I wake up, I'd go on Craigslist. I'd look for whatever opportunities that were apply. Then it was 815 and say, what am I going to do today? So I just started walking. So I actually got to see a huge swath of the peninsula. Just I would say I'm going to walk west today or I'm going to walk north. I walk miles and miles and miles. Obviously, that doesn't pay well. So eventually, I said, I've got to start looking outside this little geographic region. So I I really wanted to stay in the Bay Area. I like the Bay Area a lot. So I just sort of widened my scope. and I came across a winery up in Napa Valley that was hiring for a cost accountant. And so that was the move I made. So it's about two hours north of Palo Alto. You weren't commuting then? No. So I moved up to Napa just sort of dove in. I had this idea that I would go back to school. That was sort of always a long run plan. I wasn't sure whether it would be MBA or PhD, but I felt like I would go back to school. Of course, you know, I'd only spent about six months working down on the peninsula. And so I knew I had to do something else for like at least another year. And I thought, oh, the wine industry is fun. You know, I wasn't hugely into wine, but I enjoyed wine and I thought it'd be fun to learn more about it. So I started up there.
0: And what was that experience
1: like? I could have never planned the way it worked out in the sense that I started at the lowest rung, sort of cost account. I was not excited about being a cost accountant. (laughs) I actually told them that in the interview, which was not, in retrospect, not a good strategic move. But I did end up getting the job eventually. And what happened is the winery was moving from one end of the valley to the other. So Napa is kind of a north-south valley, so you've got kind of Calistoga up at the top. And the winery was located up there when we started, but it was moving from sort of a beautiful, picturesque, but very small winery down to a giant warehouse sort of production facility because they'd way outgrown the facility they were in. And so it was about 45 minutes south of the original location, which was perfect for me because as they're making that move, I located down in Napa, which is at the south end of the valley. But many of their employees were living up in Calistoga or even further north. And so what happened is there was a bunch of turnover that happened over my first about a year to two years at the winery. And it happened in such a way where it was always the person right in front of me that left. And again, just sort of being in the right place at the right time, I'd always go to the CEO and I'd say, I think I can do that job. And they'd give me the job on an interim basis, right? And then pretty soon I was hiring someone into the job behind me. And that happened four times all the way up to CFO. And so I was the CFO of this, you know, relatively large winery in Napa at the age of 24, largely just because I was there and um, sort of negotiated my way into each step along the way. Obviously, huge, steep learning curve. I remember when I first started, they were very concerned that the bank would accept somebody as young as I because we had a huge line of credit. And, you know, so the wine industry is largely debt financed because huge amounts of inventory, you know, lots of working capital needs. And so I remember the owner was suggesting that I go get some glasses. So I got some glasses sort of <laughs> as a prop to look a little bit older. And that was great living great life, you know, home in downtown Napa and and so on and so forth. But I remember around maybe my fourth harvest, I was thinking, am I just going to do this sort of 30 more times and call it a career? And I said, probably not. And so I started thinking about like, what's the next move? And eventually decided I would try going back to school. And so went to do my PhD at Purdue University. They had a really strong group that was focused on the the stuff I was interested in. Um, Which was what at the time? So corporate finance. So all the things that CFOs think about, right? Like how much debt should we have? What happens if we take on large debt issuances? How should we pay our employees, cash holdings, all of those types of things? Like all the things I'd seen in practice, some of which didn't make sense to me. I just wanted to dive in deeper to really try and understand them at a more fundamental level.
0: So what were some of those differences and what didn't make sense? And then what maybe what you learned that either corrected it or...
1: The thing that was interesting is that the common path to PhD is to go straight out of undergrad or maybe a very brief experience. So in that sense, it was a really non-traditional path to have worked and risen up to sort of a C-level position and then gone back. And so what I did is I took those experiences and they actually formed the basis of most of my early research. So my first paper that I wrote with my advisor, David Dennis, was basically, let's look at companies that take on large debt issuances, right? Because I've been thinking about large debt issuances through the wine industry. And then the second paper was, what happens when a CEO is sort of innately risk-taking, right? Or innately not as risk-averse? Because the wine industry attracts a lot of characters. And one of the things I noticed was that when we came across – our winery was sort of an incubator. There was about 30 different brands that were started out of our facility because it was just a large production facility. We did services for other wineries. One of the things I noticed was that the personality of the CEO really imprinted on the company. So when I got to school, I thought, well, was that just sort of like a weird phenomenon in the wine industry that's happening because these are relatively small companies or is this sort of a, a larger effect? And so we went out and we said, well, we want to find CEOs that have sort of a risk taking personality, but not necessarily in a financial sense, right? Like we don't want to take some variable from the firm. We want to try and find an external variable that indicates that they're risk taking and then study the impacts on the firm. And so we really had to do that. You know, we were hung up on driving records for a long time. So somebody had done a a similar study around not CEOs, but investors. And and in Sweden, in Scandinavia, it's like they have data on everything. And so they're able to get driving records and look at speeding tickets and this type of thing. And so that was kind of where our minds went initially. But of course, you can't just go pull driving records. There's privacy laws in the US and so on. And then one day it struck us that pilots records are openly available on the internet. So you can't download the database, but you can query the database. And so we took this huge database of CEOs, and then we had to go out and find birth dates to kind of triangulate because you'd find, you know, Brian Smith in one place and the other, and you can't really be sure it's the same guy. We eventually triangulated about almost 200 public company CEOs that were also private pilots, And so we use that as our our process. Is that self-selecting
0: that those that are pilots are maybe more likely to be risk-taking than others?
1: That's the idea, right? Is that it actually goes back to this psychological trait called sensation-seeking, which is not synonymous with risk-taking, but they're definitely highly correlated. It was a risky project because it took us forever to collect all this data. We had to kind of like teach ourselves Python and like write the script to scrape this database. And in the end, it was like, man, I hope something comes through. And when we finally got this data, it came through everywhere. And what was the finding? Yeah. So essentially, the CEOs that had higher levels of risk-taking in their private lives, we saw the same attributes in the firm. So everything from higher leverage higher prevalence of MA activity, higher equity return volatility. It was almost like everything we looked at, it, it came through. That's really interesting.
0: And then were those all public companies?
1: Those were all public companies. Okay. Yep. So that was the our database of CEOs was uh, from public companies because we needed their financials to be yeah. able to test all these things.
0: And so where along the way you had this great experience in corporate finance. And presumably, you could have taken that and gone to a different industry. And you go back to school, and it sounds like you're walking down this academic path. So what was the spark that sort of
1: led the direction of where you'd head? Essentially, I went through the program studying corporate finance. One of the promises I had made my wife was that we would try to get back to the West after school. And a job opened up in Oregon. So took the job at Oregon, so started there in 2011. So I basically wrote out the entire financial crisis in the PhD program, which again was a really interesting place to be while that was going on, right? Because just all of these people had spent their lives thinking about economics and finance were kind of trying to make sense of what happened, and it was fascinating. So started at Oregon, continued on this sort of path of research, and in 2012, so The first time I taught an MBA class, uh, I had a student named Jonathan Evans. And Jonathan was a commercial pilot. So he had flown Blackhawks in the military. He had flown air ambulance. He was, you know, like as accomplished as you could get as a helicopter pilot. And he came in and I remember him saying very early, like maybe week one or week two, he said, I'm going to start a drone company. And, you know, as a professor, you get pitched a lot of stuff. Like we have a reputation for entrepreneurship at Oregon. And so we get, you know, a lot of people with entrepreneurial aspirations. And I thought, okay, you know, we'll see. And um, didn't really think much of it. And he linked up with another student in class uh, who was an engineer, like a mechanical engineer, who had actually worked on helicopters. And so now they had the pilot who knew airspace. And they had the guy who kind of understood the machines themselves. And we just started talking about it. And I was like, I think they might have something here. But they understand the technical aspects much better than I ever will. But I'm not sure they understand the building a business part, right? Because they were first-year MBA students. Yeah. And so I said, I want to help these guys. Like, I think they genuinely have something here. So we ended up co-founding a company called Skyward, which was essentially made drone software. So for commercial drones operated by ideally large corporations. So when we started the company there was no commercial drone market. It actually was illegal to fly drones commercially in the U.S. And so every conversation we had was about regulatory risk, like when we were pitching VCs and so on. Eventually, the company got funded. It started to grow. So I was on the board there, and that was the experience through which I actually bumped into Bitcoin and blockchain.
0: I don't really see the bridge from drones I to I guess blockchain. it was just
1: being close to emerging technologies. Yeah. Right. So I'd started my career in tech, but I'd really moved away from tech through the wine experience. And then, of course, at the PhD program, wasn't sort of intimately involved in tech, This is what brought me back close to the bleeding edge of the space. And I think when you're there, regardless of what piece you're currently occupying, you're seeing a lot of other stuff that's going on, right? Whether it's AI or machine learning or cryptocurrencies, drone technology, it's kind of all pushing the edge in different directions. And so it wasn't something that made sense for what we were building. So that was early. I mean, like 2013 is when we first came across it. And it was like, I remember as soon as I saw it, I was like, this is fascinating. This is fascinating to me because this is like the perfect merger of all of my expertise, right? So all of this sort of history and tech and emerging technologies, and then the sort of formal training in finance. I was like, this is the intersection of these two pieces. Like I'm very uniquely suited to kind of look at this. And so I remember as soon as I saw it, I thought, I am going to dive into this at some point. But we were so busy with the drone company. Like, you know, any startup, you're kind of running 100 miles an hour. Plus, I was a professor, which was my main job. And so just had no time to dive into it. And so it wasn't until 2015, when I left the board of Skyward, as we went through our second venture round, that I was sort of freed up to dive into these other topics. And that is really when I dove into crypto.
0: So I want to dive into crypto before we do that. Why don't you just tell the story of what happened with Skyward from that beginning until sure
1: until the end? So when we first started, we actually thought we would be more of an operator. And so there was a company out of the UK who was inspecting oil rigs. And it was an enormously profitable business because normally to shut down an oil rig, it costs something like a million dollars an hour or a million dollars to do one of these inspections because you've got to shut the whole thing down. You've got to cool it down. You've got to send a person up there. To kind of look inside the stack and determine whether everything's okay or not. And they have to do this by regulation on a continual basis. And so, with the drone, with the right sensors, infrared sensors, and so on and so forth, you don't have to shut the thing down, right? Like you can fly it up there, fly it around, and so you can charge huge margins, which is still a massive savings to the drillers. And so, they were doing this in the UK where it was legal to fly commercial drones. But of course, The giant market was the Gulf of Mexico. So that's where you've got thousands of these oil rigs. Everyone knew that eventually the U.S. would open this up and there would be sort of like this land grab to do these inspections. And, of course, that's just one use case within drones. But it was a big one. It was one that was proven out as being really profitable. So initially we thought we'll be the U.S. subsidiary of this British company and kind of hang out until the regulations come around – But then it was like, well, I don't know. We're really interested in the software aspect of this. And there's a lot of uncertainty. Like, it could be years before these regulations. And like, are they really going to sit and just incubate us for years while we're waiting? And so in the end, we decided, what is it that we're better at or that we have a unique competency in that no one else is thinking about? And so Jonathan, we go in a lot of these conferences and he said, you know, there's a lot of people in computer science that are attacking this from very technical angle, how to write the software, like how the drone moves, right, and all the sort of op, like flying software. And then he said there's a lot of engineers that are attacking all the mechanical stuff around the machines themselves. He said, I don't really see anybody paying attention to the regulations. He said that, you know, in the end – if you envision that there's going to be thousands or hundreds of thousands of these things in the air someday, he said, these are going to have to fit into national airspace. You know, there's other participants up there, right? And so he said, I don't think anybody's thinking about that piece of it. And so we decided to form the company around that idea around regulations and, and the idea that these large corporations that have fleets are going to need to Know who's flying, where they're flying, potentially get FA approval. The insurance company, of course, is going to be involved in some of this information flow, and so we wanted to build that platform. And so it was really hard to get funding initially because of all this regulatory risk. But we found a guy out of Utah who had already exited a drone company, so used a domain angel, and then we actually found one of the co-founders of Skype. So we did, you know, of course, a Skype call with this guy who was in Estonia. And those two are kind of original angels as well as a local person in Eugene. So we got our funding. You know, we built out a prototype, eventually got some venture funding from Voyager and several others. Voyager's out of Seattle. Moved the company up to Portland at that point. So, you know, everyone moved up to Portland, of course, except for me because I was a professor down in Eugene. So I'd kind of do the train ride once a week or something and go up there went through some more venture funding. And then eventually, Verizon actually started participating, I believe, starting our second round. And at one point, Verizon decided, you know, we're going to need a drone division. And this company already has all these relationships. And so Verizon acquired us in February of last year. And what happened with the regulations? was fascinating. It actually informed a lot of the way I think about crypto. Because... Initially, it was illegal. So everyone was sort of scared off, right? And everyone said, all we need to know are the rules, like we're happy to comply, or at least there was a contingent of people that were happy to comply. But there was just so much uncertainty about what they were going to look like. And I really think the F.A. did it the right way because what they did is they convened a lot of industry leaders. They did a lot of listening, both to people that were on the side of managing airspace as well as the people that wanted to put machines into this airspace. And they eventually came out with something called Part 107. And Part 107 was sort of a pivotal moment in the drone industry because it really set down the law for how you could operate commercially, legally. And it's interesting because. A lot of people look as regulation look at regulation as constraining innovation to some degree, right? Like this is a friction. This is making it harder to do what we want to do. In the case of Part 107, I think it was actually an enabler of innovation because as soon as everyone knew what the rules were, you had all these large companies that wanted to invest in the space, but they had held out, right? And so... Verizon never would have bought Skyward pre-Part 107. It was only after Part 107 was laid down that they said, all right, now here are the rules. We're going to know how to comply with them. We're going to start investing in this space.
0: And so when was Part 107
1: enacted? Part 107, I want to say it was like 2016. So it took a couple yeah, of years. It, yeah. t- it was definitely not early on in our history. It There was sort of a precursor that was uh, opened it up a little bit, but part 107 is what sort of opened the floodgates.
0: So let's turn to crypto. Yep. Where did you start your research when you first had time to get exposed to it?
1: You know, as soon as I had time, I started reading everything I could. And then, of course, I'm an, I'm an empirical researcher. So I said, I need data, right? Like, I need data. There's not many academics looking at the space. And so I'm going to just cold email everyone I can think of. So I cold emailed like Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, and I cold emailed Patrick Byrne of Overstock and a bunch of others, like anyone who was kind of using Bitcoin in commerce in some way. And what was amazing is back then the industry was still so small that they actually got back to me. Right? Like today, it's hard to even get a response from customer service for a lot of these companies. And, and back then, it was like high ranking people were getting back to me saying, really, the pivotal one, I guess, was um, Adam White from Coinbase. He got back and he said, look, so he was like the number two guy there. And he said, we can't give you data like that. We're just not in a position to release data to you. But you should really call this guy Chris Berniski. So Chris Berniski was an analyst in an ETF here in New York called ARK. And Adam said, you know, he's the only guy I know that's thinking about this the way you are in terms of like really trying to think through like, why do these things have value? How does value accrue? How are these networks going to develop sort of like a lot of the economic fundamentals behind these assets? And so I called Chris or Adam connected us. And that was really a pivotal moment for me because really, we just started doing a series of calls. And Chris, I have to credit him with really educating me on the space. So of course, he wrote a book called Crypto Assets. He's gone on to found a firm called Placeholder Ventures with Joel Monegro from USV. And it was really that series of calls with Chris that I sort of ramped up. That plus, of course, a lot of self-study.
0: How did that take hold? So, What were you researching or what were you trying to produce?
1: Yeah, so initially, we were really interested in how price volatility impacted consumers. How does the volatility of Bitcoin impact its use in commercial transactions? So we're really interested in sort of on-chain volume. And and it turned out that's actually pretty difficult to parse out, like which transactions are commercial and which are sort of exchange in nature. I mean, you can separate off exchange volume. But when you look at the on-chain volume, you have kind of got a mishmash of a lot of different stuff. So then we moved on and really started looking at ICOs. So of course, I've been studying, you know, securities my whole career, have thought a lot about IPOs and equity issuance. And so we said, oh, so like ICOs are sort of this equivalent for the crypto industry. And so really just started going through IPOs and thinking about all the different attributes, right? So like, is there a vesting period? What's the background of the founders? Like what sorts of things kind of contribute to, to success? And have you written any papers on that? That project, it turned out that that was sort of the obvious paper to write. And so it turned out that actually lots of people started working on that topic. Just before we move on to that, what are the consensus
0: conclusions of the ICO market? Because I think a lot of people have heard about it, but don't really
1: know. So I don't know if there's consensus on anything in terms of academia and this market, right? Because it obviously was just sort of crazy in 2017. I mean, one of the things that we found was there definitely was sort of updating by the projects. So in the early part of the rush, they were leaving a lot of money on the table, right? And so, and we saw this with IPOs as well, like in the tech boom, right? Like they'd issue at $10 and it closed at like 127 or whatever. One of the things we saw is that as we moved through 2017, the projects got better at capturing more of that value. So we weren't seeing as large of sort of the pop on day one of trading. The other big theme was that regulations became much more important, right? So initially, everybody was ignoring securities laws entirely. And then there was this idea of like, oh, maybe we need to comply with these things. And so then there were all these other mechanisms, like the SAFT that were invented. And so I'd say that was the other big theme is that everyone started trying to, or the legitimate projects, I guess, started trying to comply with regulations yeah. in some way. Yeah. How did you get from... ICOs to security tokens the epiphany was really blockchain capital so blockchain capital in I want to say April of 2017 So they're a a VC fund they had had prior funds raised in the normal way And they said we're gonna take a portion of our fund and we're gonna tokenize it So instead of just LP interests, we're gonna I think they did ten million dollars So we're gonna issue ten million tokens. We're gonna sell them for a buck each You've got to be a credit investor the regulations require that it be 99 investors max. And so I applied for an allocation, I got it. And so I invested in this VCAP token. And everyone knew like it's going to be locked up for at least a year. And there's sort of no infrastructure to trade these things when they did it. They were really sort of a, a pioneer. But the reason it was epiphany is because I said, wow, you know, I as an individual investor, sort of an angel investor, like, I can't get access to the best deals, right? Like, I can't, I have no opportunity to invest in Coinbase. Like, I have no opportunity to invest in Bitmain or, or you know, all the big names that were kind of raising back then. You know, and VC funds, like, they don't want to take money from a bunch of individual investors through the traditional LP stance because it's just going to be a massive headache, right? It's going to be a massive paper headache and they don't want to deal with redemptions. But this was sort of a new form of an ownership claim that allowed the investors some liquidity when they started trading and allowed access to a much wider pool of market participants. And so it was just really eye-opening to me. I said, I think a lot of things are going to move this way. And so I wrote a paper called Traditional Asset Tokenization, and that was sort of maybe a year, year and a half ago. Then people started talking about security tokens and people got excited about it and the different use cases and, you know, real estate and private funds and various other things. And I went to Consensus this last year. So Consensus is one of the largest crypto conferences actually held right here in New York. It was like 6,000 people, I think, or 8,000 people this last year. And everyone had all these ideas about security tokens and what the benefits were and I just realized at that conference, I was like, I need to write something that kind of puts all of this in one place, right? Like sort of uh, form out the entire thesis. It's actually not my thesis. It's sort of the thesis of all the people that were thinking about this stuff. Yeah. And so I was like everywhere I was going, like all these dinners and everything, I was always asking people, what do you think the benefits of security tokens are? And sort of collecting their thoughts and then synthesizing them. And so I guess the way I came to security tokens was that I've spent my whole career studying securities. That's what I've studied as a professor. Whether it's debt, equity, all the different sorts of facets of securities, and so of course, when it comes to blockchain, that's naturally where my mind is going to go. Is like, yeah. what if we could represent these types of ownership claims on chain? How
0: do you define a security token?
1: I don't think there is any agreed upon definition. The one I used in the article was a any representation of value. On chain, so on a blockchain that is subject to security laws, so that would include so all subject the- to. So is regulated exactly. Yes. So there certainly are network assets, so so-called utility tokens, that are going to try and make the case eventually that they should not be deemed securities, right? Because they're sufficiently decentralized and they don't pass the Howey test. And so on and so forth. And so not all blockchain, like Bitcoin is very clearly not a security. They've said as as much, right? Like it's going to be regulated by the CFTC. And so not all of these assets are securities, but most of the network assets at least start their life as securities before the network is active. And of course, all the traditional assets, real estate, equity, bonds that we might represent on-chain are going to be deemed securities for their entire uh, life cycle. So let's walk
0: through the thesis. Sure.
1: So I kind of just laid out, it was like a bullet point list. You know, there's maybe eight items and some of them were not that revolutionary, like the idea that markets might be open longer than the traditional hours we see today. Right. So 24-7 trading of markets is that a good thing? You know, I don't know that it is a good thing for all assets and I actually I'm not sure all assets are going to trade 24/7, right? Because it's a liquidity issue. You don't really want to spread the liquidity out over all of those hours. And even if you look at the like extended hours right on the New York Stock Exchange, you get lower liquidity. Like I remember like when I first traded on extended hours, like I had to sign a little disclaimer that said, "Hey, you know, you might not be getting the best price but trading, you know, in this lower liquidity environment." So I think what you're going to see is a spectrum. So some assets are going to trade 24-7. I mean, many assets already do. Bitcoin is traded 24-7. Ethereum is traded 24-7. For traditional assets, maybe the larger issues will trade 24-7, but you'll find others that will trade on uh, restricted hours. Maybe you'll find others that only trade on certain days of the week. That's something that we're going to discover as we go through this. So that's sort of the first point of the thesis. That's the first point of the thesis. And then I go through things like people talk about immediate settlement. Right, So Bitcoin settles in 10 minutes. Many of these other crypto assets settle in minutes or seconds even. Uh, And this idea that when I buy a share of stock, like it's not actually in my account for for a day or two, seems like this thing out of sort of antiquity relative to the way the digital age works today. And so one of the points I make in the paper is that I think there is a lot of promise in terms of really reducing settlement time, but these are more complicated transactions than just... The way cryptocurrency works, right? Like you've got custodians involved, you've got regulators involved, you've got sort of a lot of other people that that are gonna exert some influence or that you've got shorting, you've got buying on margin, you've got sort of all these extra pieces. And I think a lot of that will be able to be automated, but it's not as simple as saying Bitcoin clears in 10 minutes, stocks should clear in 10 minutes. But I do think the prospect for really shortening that settlement time is there, but it's it's gonna take some work. Okay. So let's see. Next point, if I remember correctly, was probably fractional ownership. Fractional ownership is, you know, just the idea that you have high unit value assets, whether it's like a skyscraper here in New York or a company like, you know, obviously we've been doing fractional ownership for a long time. This is not something that's unique to blockchain. But this was kind of the idea behind this BCAP token or this blockchain yeah. capital. It's like one of the reasons we don't fractionalize ownership as much as we could is because it's sort of a headache. From just like a logistical paperwork standpoint. And so, by infusing a lot of that stuff into a token, it just makes managing a cap table with a lot more participants a lot easier for the issuer. And you already see this to some degree with real estate. Like, we got all these sites like Cadre and Realty Shares and Realty Mogul and CrowdStreet, and there's probably a dozen others where you can go and fractionalize real estate right now, but they don't work quite the same way as tokens, which I'll get to in just a moment. Yeah. I think the more important pieces of the thesis are really liquidity, automated compliance, interoperability and what I call design space. So I kind of walk through those things. So liquidity is this idea that when you raise a VC fund, you're investing typically in illiquid assets and so your investors are locked up for seven, eight, nine, ten years. And this idea with the Bcap token is that they can lock up the capital, without locking up the investors. So that's a line that Josh Stein from Harbor often uses, is this idea that what the VC fund cares about is that the capital is locked up. They don't really need the investors to be locked up. They don't mind if a secondary market develops. And so that I think is one of the promises of tokens, is this idea that funds or various types of assets can raise capital and the capital is locked up, yet the investor can achieve some degree of liquidity through a secondary market transaction, and not through redemptions to the issuer.
0: I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, thirty-six thousand, twenty-five, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now back to the show. So it strikes me there's a difference in an asset. Say there's a, a skyscraper where the cash flows can flow through to all the investors, and a partnership where there's a dynamic flow of capital. So the the GP draws down capital. How does that work, say, in that example
1: with blockchain in the token? The way that blockchain capital did it is a full raise up front. And so that is different than the traditional right. model. You could imagine scenarios where we could start to see a migration towards capital calls as opposed to a full upfront raise, but we're not there yet. I mean, the way I view this is the initial versions of security tokens are going to be plain vanilla issuances. We're going to take like the simplest version of representing an ownership claim in one of these assets and represent it on chain. And those will be kind of the test cases, right? And we'll see how that works. And then over time, we'll start integrating more and more complex features. So why does that need to be on blockchain? So that's a great question. I think it's one that I thought about for a long time. And I think the idea is that when securities are programmable, you get a lot more features. Now, you don't necessarily need to be on chain to be programmable. But the thing that you get with blockchain is interoperability. So let me tell you what I mean by that. Maybe I'll use an example of realty shares and cadre. So so in those models, you already can fractionalize ownership. Right? So you can take a building and put it on one of these platforms, sell one thousand dollar shares or whatever, and raise millions of dollars for a skyscraper. What you can't do is take that asset first of all, there may not be any secondary market because what would happen? it would have to be built by that platform, right because their business model is keeping the assets on platform. They get a percentage right, a management fee for all the assets that are on their platform. They don't want the assets to leave the platform. And so many of them have not built out secondary trading models. But even if they have, you're then locked into whatever liquidity exists within that one pool. So, whatever investors are on that platform. What you can't do is take something you bought on Realty Shares and move it over to CrowdStreet to access a different pool of liquidity, or just if you like their interface better. So, in a sense, although we have a lot of these things already, what we don't have is interoperability between different platforms. And so that is one of the things that blockchain gives you. So blockchain really is their protocols, right? And so if you think about protocols more generally, we've been around protocols our whole lives or not our whole lives, but certainly like the internet itself is just a set of interoperable protocols, right? Like HTTP, that P is protocol, right? Like IMAP, the thing that allows me to write an email in in Gmail and send it to you maybe in Outlook, and both of the interfaces can make sense of the information. That's because we have an interoperable protocol that sort of dictates how that data moves and is interpreted and is exchanged. What blockchain offers us are protocols that are specifically built to move value. So that is the thing that we've been missing until really the Bitcoin blockchain was invented, is that most of the protocols we have today have been good for moving various types of information, but not necessarily for moving value. And so that really is the big innovation, is this idea that Digital wallets will be able to hold all different kinds of assets. You'll be able to hold shares of stock and bonds and pieces of real estate, maybe the mortgage to your home, like all these different sorts of assets, if they can be represented as a token that's interoperable with all the other pieces of software that's out there, right? So like you you may have a different wallet than I, just like you have a different email client than I. But to the extent they both adhere to a standard, so like ERC-20 is an Ethereum standard. And many of the wallets you see out there today are all ERC-20 compliant. The reason they are is because everyone knows that if you just build a token and make it ERC-20 compliant, it's already going to work with all of this software. That's the thing that we've been missing until blockchain came around. The liquidity that you're
0: talking about, you know, we're talking about a building, an LP interest in a fund, these are all illiquid assets, generally thought of as today. Where
1: does the liquidity come from? So I think it comes down to market depth. I often use this analogy of this baseball card I had when I was a kid. So when I was a kid, I got a Daryl Strawberry rookie card. And, I had um, the same card, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I was so excited. It was worth a lot of money. So I tell the story, like I looked up, you know, Beckett Monthly was kind of where you got your prices of these cards. And I looked it up and it was maybe 50 bucks or something, which seemed like a fortune when I was a, a little kid. And, and so I went over to the card shop and the guy there was Calvin. I said, Calvin, like my $50, I want to turn this in and buy Snicker bars or whatever. And and he said, you know, I'll give you eight bucks. And I said, well, that sounds terrible, right? This thing says it's worth 50 And, you know, maybe I negotiated them up to 10, got my 10 bucks. And then next time I went to the store, it's on the shelf for $50. So that's like the bid-ask spread in finance. And I didn't understand that terminology when I was a kid, but it was very impactful. It was the sense that like there was no other market other than Calvin. I couldn't walk to any other card shop. I mean, none of my friends had $50. And so there was just very, very little market depth, right? And so when we think about like illiquidity or liquidity as academics, we don't think about it as like ability to trade or inability to trade. We think of it as costliness to trade, right? So like price impact or bid-ask spread, like these are the measures we might use to, to measure how illiquid an asset is. And so, to the degree that you can expand markets, so like then, you know, eBay came into being, like later in my life. But, you know, of course, if it had been around when I was a kid, I probably could have gotten a lot more than 10 bucks for my Daryl Strawberry card. Because yeah. what it did is it created a lot more depth in the market for those types of assets, right? Now, all of a sudden, you had this asset, and it didn't only have to be your local market or, or a very small number of buyers. You could literally access everyone in the world who might want that Daryl Strawberry card, and it was a much more robust market, much smaller bid-ass spreads, that sort of thing. And so I guess you could draw that sort of analogy to a lot of these private securities, right, is if your buyers are only large institutions – And there's certainly a number of those, right? And and active markets exist, even secondary markets exist. But they're sort of one-offs and they're also characterized by very large discounts is my understanding. So to the extent you can start opening that up, even like setting retail aside for a minute, like if you could just open those assets up to all accredited investors all across the world, that's an enormous increase in market depth. And so you have to believe that that is going to impact liquidity, it's going to impact some of these price impacts and spreads. So do
0: you see that eventually, instead of having just the blockchain capital token, that someone will create a platform where you have interoperability of all these different illiquid assets in one place so the accredited investors could sort of create the marketplace?
1: Yeah. So I think there's going to be a few things that happen. Uh, The first is that you're going to see a bunch of these assets tokenized. They're going to adhere to standards so that they can be held by any wallet. So wallets are a really important piece of this ecosystem. They're kind of like, your interface to this world. It's where you hold the assets. It's where you can trade the assets on decentralized exchanges. It's probably your interface for where you'll vote to the extent they're voting rights with some of these things. It's probably where you'll receive your distributions like dividends, lease payments, whatever. So the wallet is really, really important. And so that's where I think you're going to see the interoperability is that the, as these things are issued, they're going to make sure they're compliant with all of these wallet interfaces that are out there. The other thing I think you're going to see happen is that there are already people building protocols to bundle these things, right? Almost like homemade mutual funds. So there's a group called um, SET protocol, for example, right? And what you can do is you can create your own basket. So say we had a bunch of buildings tokenized here in Manhattan, and you wanted to build a Upper West Side Basket, Like you could do that presumably using the SET protocol. And so what you'll see is almost like an explosion in investable assets, not only at the underlying individual level, but in sort of like any basket you could possibly imagine. So like an Upper West Side basket or make a basket with all the VC funds that are focusing on AI or some specific strain of biotech or whatever.
0: The more depth you get and the more breadth you have of these assets, in theory, now you have price discovery by buyers and sellers of illiquid assets. And I just think forward of, you have more trading, more price discovery. Does that end up changing the incentives of the people managing assets in the same way that, say, corporate CEOs are more shorter term than everyone believes they should be because of information and price discovery?
1: I guess if you're thinking about sort of like um, being myopic or sort of short-termism, it's interesting because, you know, one of the things, I guess this goes to really that last point I made in the security token thesis is that I think you're going to see the nature of what a security is begin to change, or at least what features can be included, right? So right now we have two basic rights that we see in like an equity security, the cash flow rights, voting rights kind of the, the typical things you'd see in a common share of stock. What I think you're going to see is that there will be both bundling and unbundling, or maybe just those rights in and of themselves, we can start to sort of alter. So I'll give you an example is a lot of people are talking about this idea of tenured voting. So tenured voting is the idea that the longer you hold a share of stock, the more voting rights you get. And if you look at kind of what a lot of founders do, like the, recently, some of the tech issues we've seen come to market, what do the founders do? They create a share of like a class of of shares that has 10 votes, and then everyone else gets one vote. It's kind of the same idea as tenured voting. It's just a very crude mechanism to accomplish it. It's like the people that have been involved the longest are going to get the the lion's share of the voting rights. Well, if you wanted to, so maybe you were worried about kind of like being myopic, and you, you, because that is something that might be able to counteract that particular issue. If you give the votes to the long-term shareholders, they can sort of empower management to take long-term actions, right? So you could program that into the security, you know, relatively easily with smart contracts, where you look at the length of time that a that particular asset has been held by a particular wallet and allocate voting rights in that way. But as it comes to money managers, I don't know. I mean, I think the options they will have to deploy assets will increase substantially. I think people are still going to need advice. Large pools of capital are still going to be managed. So, I mean, I think there's some things that won't change, but I think the particular assets and the manner in which they invest in them will change.
0: What are some more examples of use cases of where you'd see bundling or unbundling?
1: So I guess another unbundling example would be if just going back to this cash flow and voting right, like say I hold a share of Microsoft, it has these two rights. The voting rights are almost inconsequential to me if I hold 100 shares, right? But for most atomistic investors, like the voting rights are are almost meaningless. However, they might not be meaningless to an activist. So to the extent we could unbundle the voting rights from the cash flow rights you could actually sell off the voting rights separately while retaining the cash flow rights. It's kind of like non-voting stock. so And that's perfectly legal, right? It's like you can't sell your vote for president. You can sell your vote on a corporate action. And in fact, some of that does happen. Like there's a famous example with Carly Fiorina on buying votes. Like When things get close, those votes actually become valuable when there's particularly contentious issues. So to the idea that you could sell your vote or lease your vote, right, like sell it for the next six months, or lease it for the next six months, that's something that potentially we could build into these smart securities or programmable securities. You also talked in the paper about access rights
0: and partnership interests, which I I thought fascinating. Why don't you talk some about that particular unbundling potential?
1: Sure. So access rights to, could take a lot of different flavors, right? So right now, when I buy a share of Microsoft, I get these two flow and voting rights. I don't get the right to, I mean, maybe other than the shareholder meeting, like go visit the Microsoft campus or if I invest in Sequoia's current fund, that does not typically, I mean, may, there may be sort of an informal arrangement. There's not formally endow My ability to participate in their follow on fund, but that's actually considered a very valuable that allocation like take benchmark, right? So benchmark, you know, I just read an article the other day, like their recent fund is just crushed it, right? Yet they're not going to raise a bigger fund. This is what the article was saying, right? It's like they're actually going to raise the same size fund they did the last time. Of course, it'll be massively, massively oversubscribed, right? Like they could raise a substantial additional amount of capital, but they're going to choose not to, which means that the people that have allocations into that fund, presumably that's a valuable asset. And to the extent that Benchmark could formally include, like say they actually tokenized that fund, and it not only gives you a right to invest in this fund, but it also gives you a right to invest in say, every subsequent fund or at least the next fund. Well, all of a sudden, to raise a dollar of capital, somebody might pay a dollar twenty-five because not only are they putting the dollar into this current fund, they're also buying the access right to the next fund. It actually would allow Benchmark to raise more capital yet retain the same size fund because what they're also selling are access rights to follow on offerings. I think it's an interesting idea. I haven't really seen anybody do it, but I guess I'm always interested by items of value that people aren't monetizing, right? Like access rights are clearly something that people value highly, yet they're not explicitly monetized. But another example, if we step away from funds, is if you look at um like the Green Bay Packers, a public company, right? That one's interesting because there are no cash flow rights, there are no voting rights. There are only access rights. The only thing they're selling with that share of stock are access rights, right? You can access, I don't know, probably like memorabilia or gear that, you know, maybe isn't access to the public. You get to go to this giant party every year and, you know, you maybe you get to access to this community. And so the only thing people are paying for when they buy a share of stock in the Green Bay Packers are these access rights, which indicate that there's some value there, That's probably not really being taken advantage of by all the other sports teams. And so I wouldn't be surprised to see other sports teams try to access these models to some degree.
0: And again, you come back to this question of the concepts are innovative, right? That there's value, there's financial value into things that aren't being ascribed value today. To what degree... Does that need to be on the blockchain? Or is it just an innovation that someone should take advantage of?
1: The place where I always went with this when I was thinking about it is, you know, because we'd always ask this question, like, why blockchain? Like, why can't we just do this with databases, right? And, and, you know, stored procedures. And we have a lot of technological tools at our disposal already. Like, and the place that I always come back to is like, well, then why don't we have this already, right? Like, if this is something that seems really interesting and people are interested in, like, why don't we already have all these things we're talking about with tokens? I guess I just always come back to this idea of interoperability. The Green Bay Packers share, there's no real market to trade that. And you know, with these fractional real estate offerings, like there's no real market to trade that. Like We need to create a system where we've got markets and wallets and all the pieces you need to build a market that all work together. And that's kind of... The piece we've been missing, and I think part of the reason we've been missing it is because it's very hard to create standards in a centralized entity. If you're Google, like you don't want to sign on to Microsoft's centralized standard and vice versa. And so it's very hard for sort of a for-profit corporation to create a standard that's going to be widely adopted – Because of course, everyone knows that a lot of value is going to accrue to that corporation. And so you get all these sort of strategic forces that prevent that from happening. When you look at something like Ethereum, this ERC20 standard, it's a public chain, anybody can buy Ethereum tokens, it's sort of maintained by a for profit entity. And so Everyone has just sort of adopted the standard as the way to build something that isn't going to work with everything else. It's like this is like the idea behind network effects, right? Like at some point, you have more incentive to adopt the standard than you have to deviate the standard. That is the tipping point. That is the tipping point where you say, all right, everyone's just going to build on top of this thing, which is then going to create these huge markets. And I think it's been very difficult to do that in a centralized manner which is why these sort of decentralized public chains have captured everybody's attention. And when you circle back to your history of stock issuance,
0: earlier this year, you had like the Spotify non-IPO, IPO, or whatever the way they refer to it. And what I found fascinating was in doing this direct listing, they nevertheless decided to pay all these investment bankers, mostly to create effectively marketing for the stock. And is that just part of the evolution that in the early stages, you still need, I don't know if it's a centralized or middleman to create the market, but maybe down the road, the the network effect takes off on its own?
1: No question. People always ask me about cost reduction, like how much cheaper is it going to be to issue a token versus go through an IPO? And the answer is that today, I'm not sure it is cheaper. Because if you look at the costs around an IPO – yeah, there's some legal costs, there's some accounting costs, like there's some things you could probably automate. But the really big costs are the bankers that are selling it, right? So this saying that securities are sold, they're not bought, right? And so that doesn't change in the short run, like you're still going to have to pay people to market the issuance. Now, in the longer run, who knows, it's almost like the paradox of information, though, like the more information we have, the harder it is to sort out the wheat from the chaff. Right, so right. I think there's definitely still a role for people marketing these issues. In the short run, like I said, things are going to be sort of plain vanilla. We're going to we're going to do things the way we've done them, but on chain. And then in the longer run, maybe we evolve new ways to market these things through through targeted advertising and and of course the regulatory things we have to think about yeah. when we go through those as well.
0: Let's touch on compliance, which I know is the, the other big piece of the thesis. Yep.
1: The very first article I wrote, you know, I said, hey, this blockchain capital thing happened, it's really interesting, like we might be able to increase liquidity and market depth. And then I went through some sections towards the end of the article, kind of like trying to be balanced, right? Like, what are the reasons this won't happen? One of them was compliance. And this is, in many ways, the most intriguing part of the whole puzzle to me. Because, as I said, if you look at my background through Skyward, all we did was think about the intersection of emerging technology and regulations. And so it was something I've been thinking about for a long time, like even before I got into crypto and I got into crypto, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's the same thing again, right? It's like this really interesting new emerging technology kind of bumping up against regulations that haven't really been formed yet. And so securities have a lot of rules, as we all know. And so when Blockchain Capital issued that BCAP token, they went through, they did Reg D, they did KYC AML. The thing that wasn't built, so like the piece of infrastructure that wasn't built, well, two pieces really. One, we didn't have the exchanges that were regulated in order to trade these things. So that the ones that had all the right broker-dealer relationships, had come up with all the ATS licenses and so on and so forth. The other thing we didn't have is something that could keep track of the compliance regardless of where the token traded. So shortly after I wrote that thing, a guy named David Sachs reached out to me. So David Sachs is famous from PayPal and Yammer, and he's had uh, lots of uh, really important roles in the tech industry. And he said, you know, I'm thinking about the same things. And like, we've already started – work on this project around this regulatory piece. Because the idea is that regardless of where the token trades, you want to be able to keep track of who owns it. This is like one of the really important pieces that sets tokens away from the way we do things now, is that if you look at the way we do compliance today, we do it within walled gardens. So like I get an account of Merrill Lynch, they do KYC, they make sure I'm not doing bad things. You have an account at E-Trade or whatever, and and they do the same thing to you. And then we trade through these sort of two-wall gardens, and everything's on the up and up because each of those entities has sort of done their piece to maintain compliance. What's very hard, though, is for me, peer-to-peer to transfer shares of stock to you. So the example I often use is, um, so like I make charitable donations every year and typically I'll I'll donate shares of stock because of course there's a tax benefit. So it's such an onerous process. Like I have to go online, I have to find some form, print it out, go get it notarized to prove that it's actually me sending this transmission message eventually like you know mail it in to some PO box in North Carolina and then like 2 weeks later the charity actually gets the the share of uh stock and I've actually had a situation where the price moved pretty substantially against me during those 2 weeks and so the donation ended up being a lot less which is not good for the charity it's obviously not good for me from a tax standpoint and so I look at that and I say, why is it so hard to transfer assets peer-to-peer? Well, partly, it's a compliance issue. So Harbor is the company that David Sachs started, and Josh Stein is the CEO now, and there are others, right? But the basic idea is that we want to infuse compliance into the security. This is one of the benefits of securities being programmable, is that now we can put logic directly into the security. So when I want to transfer it from me to you, Right, so I go ahead and I send it from my wallet to your wallet, except now because we have some compliance language programmed in there, it's going to check off against a whitelist, right, or what we call a regulator service, and it's going to make sure that whatever the attributes of that security is. So maybe it's something that can only be traded among accredited investors. It's going to make sure that my wallet is associated with an accredited investor. It's going to make sure your wallet is associated with an accredited investor. We're not doing compliance at the exchange level anymore. We're now doing it at the level of the security, which is actually a fascinating concept. And I think like one of the major sort of innovations we're going to see with programmable securities. Regulators should be thrilled about this, by the way, because it's going to be much easier to maintain compliance. That's super interesting. Are there other key obstacles
0: in eventually seeing all of this happen over the coming years? So
1: I would put the largest obstacle are just the interfaces right now. If you look at the internet, right? So the internet existed for like 30 years before we all started using it. I don't know when you, if you remember the first time you got on the internet. For I, me, it was like... I do. It was in college, some video game my roommate was playing, and right. I was too worried about uh, bugs it, infecting my uh, computer. Mine was in like maybe 1994, and it was through AOL. You know, the Internet had been around a long, long time before that. But what had not existed were the interfaces. The nodes were kind of it was very hard, right? Like you'd almost be a computer scientist to actually log on and access these things. But with the advent of AOL and then Hotmail, which is sort of like the first free, like completely free. I don't know if it was absolutely the first was really it was early one that had a large rate of adoption, right? Where anyone could go on, they could get an email address. Now all of a sudden they could send messages to every anyone else who had one of these things, kind of like wallets, right? So anybody can go on and get a wallet today, like, you know, absolutely free to go set up a digital wallet. But they're still sort of intimidating to people, right? Like this idea that like if I lose my key or if I make a typo, like the thing's gone forever and then I've lost all this money and... And it's scary, right? Probably in the same way that the internet was scary in the in the 80s, like bugs. Actually, you just mentioned it, right? Like people had all these concerns about using the technology and bad things that might happen. We're still kind of in that stage, right? So we've certainly seen more adoption, things like Coinbase, right? Like have a nice interface that feels like logging on to Fidelity or whatever. And that stuff is going to help a lot. But I think we just need... You know, you've got this intersection of crypto investors and they're looking for venture like returns, right? And then you've got all the traditional investors that might invest in things like real estate. And I, the intersection between those two is not as large as it will be one day, right? Because many of the traditional investors are intimidated by the technology or just the interfaces. But I think as they start moving up that learning curve, that's when you're going to see more and more assets tokenized because there's going to be a larger and larger market to sell into. I'm kind of curious, in in a lot of these illiquid assets, the nature of the
0: flow of information, say between a GP or an LP or the owner of a building and the, the, the people who are participating in it, tends to be information that's contained within its own network. How does that happen on this type of securitized token where there might be more anonymity of the relationship between the sort of manager of the asset and
1: the owner of the cash flow? So I would argue it is visible. So if a public pension invests in it, it is visible, right? Because Prequin can go in through Freedom of Information Act and access all this information, and they do, and they sell it to people like me, right? So academic researchers and others, can go in and actually buy much of this data in terms of performance data or is it the underlying information of what's Uh, happening? It is primarily performance data, but it also does have their holdings, right? Like we can see everything that they've invested in. It probably doesn't have the same level of disclosure like the vacancy rate of this building was 8% or whatever in this month. I don't think it gets that fine. But I do think disclosure systems are... One of the other things that need to get built, and you've got various teams working on them. So there's a group called Masari that is trying to build out sort of a, an information disclosure platform. It's something that all of the compliance platforms are thinking about as well. Like, what is the information that a building is going to have to disclose if they tokenize the asset, right? Like, lease rates and how intricate are we going to have to get into the leases and and so on and so forth. So I would say that is not completely figured out, but it is a need that everyone is recognizes and will need to be met. Well, Stephen, I really enjoyed the thesis and talking to you about this because it's probably the
0: first time other than the notion of Bitcoin as a digital currency, that I actually could understand, hey, this may have a use case that makes sense down the road. So I want to thank you for that. And let's turn to some closing
1: questions. Sure. What was your favorite extracurricular achievement? So I played sports and I was like, I grew up in Minnesota. So the big sports there are hockey and wrestling. And I played both. Now, sadly, they're in the same season. So you can't play both simultaneously. But I started hockey kind of as soon as I could walk and you know played up until high school and i was a goalie right so i have lots of memories about kind of like big saves and that type of thing but i think my favorite moment was probably from wrestling so i wrestled all through high school and i was good but not great like i was good enough to be captain of the team but i was not like state tournament level and so i remember there was a regional tournament and i matched up against a guy that it was he was one of the best wrestlers in the state right like state champion level and there was sort of no question I was going to lose to this guy. But at the same time, I thought, well, maybe I can he kind of use some. He was much stronger than I was. I thought maybe I can use his strength against him. So I sort of watched and I knew he had this one move that he favored. Right. And so I'd sort of hatched this entire plan that like he's going to do this move. And here's like the exact thing I'm going to do to like carry his momentum against him, get him all the way on his back. And so the mar- the match started, of course, like he did this move. And it worked. You know, I flipped him over. I had him on his back. Sadly, I could not pin him, so I still (laughs) lost the match. But this idea of sort of like hatching a plan and then successfully executing it, it was sort of like one of my earliest memories of that really working in in a sports or extracurricular environment. that's fantastic. What's your biggest professional pet peeve? Well, I'll give you two. Within venture investing, a pet peeve is when We look at raising capital or when a portfolio company looks at raising capital as success. And as a venture investor, you're always trying to explain to them, this is not success, right? This is an ingredient for success, but really getting traction, really getting users like that's success. So that that always is irritating is that we celebrate fundraising to the extent we do. I think the other one is sort of um, misrepresenting luck as skill. And so, I mean, this is a common one that you'll often find financial academics complain about is like, is it skill or is it luck? And maybe it's even bigger than investing, right? Like if you look at going back to this example of at the winery, you know, I became CFO at a young age. Like that wasn't really skill. I mean, that was certainly like luck. I guess the way I look at it is like, you know, Seneca had this line about luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So preparation is the internal part. That's the part you can control. You can be prepared Right but opportunity is often an external force and that is the luck part is like you need both right you need the internal preparation i don't want to discount that people can sort of make their own luck but that always needs to be coupled typically with external events that are outside your control and i think recognizing that piece of it and acknowledging that it's not all skill there's always things that have to break your way is is really important what teaching from your parents has most stayed with you don't quit right? Which sounds very cliche. Maybe the right term is um, don't rage quit, right? So <laughs> with sports or, you know, they always were like, I would have a bad game or whatever. And I'd be like, I want to not play hockey anymore. And they'd say, nope, you're finishing the season, right? Like you can transition at that point, but, you know, other people relying on you. You're not quitting mid-season. You're not quitting mid-course. You're not quitting, you know, whatever. Well, you're going to see it through, to a logical transition point. And that's that's always stayed with me. Like if you look at the winery, right, like I transitioned out of the winery, but I did it in a very I did it in a very sort of like way that was well planned. It wasn't like I just walked in one day and quit and said, I'm gonna go right join a PhD program. So every transition in my life, I've always tried to approach it that way. What information <laughs> source do you read more than any other? I would say probably Twitter, which is interesting because like, I never used to use Twitter before I got involved in crypto. But it's just so much of the conversation is happening there. I'd say the other sources are um Medium. So again, something I never used before crypto. And now I am on it literally every single day. There is so much good content on Medium that's out there for free. And, and I mean, they also have a membership where you can access even more content, but both as somebody who is pushed content as someone who's digested. I'm really enamored with Medium. And then I guess the last piece is all the academic literature, right? Like SSRN, again, like SSRN is a free resource. Now, I think that's kind of one of my advantages in this space is that a lot of that stuff is hard to approach. You need some training in econometrics to kind of get through the math and whatnot. But there's, of course, a lot of great research on SSRN. All right,
0: Steve, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your
1: life? I guess it, one of the guiding principles has been, there's this quote from Maya Angelou. It says, you know, people forget what you did and people will forget what you said, but they'll never forget the way you made them feel. And that has always stayed with me. I use it everywhere, right? I use it in the classroom. I use it when pitching investors. Like students, if you can make them feel something, will remember the lesson so much more vividly, right? Like if you can make an investor feel something during a pitch, it's so much more likely that they're going to buy in and invest. And there's something called the the spotlight effect, which is that people always think they're in the spotlight, that everybody's kind of paying attention to them. But because everyone's kind of caught up in their own spotlight, they're not always sort of taking note of everything else that's happening around them. And so I think the way to kind of break through that and really get retention and memory and buy-in is by really making people feel something when you're speaking to them. Fantastic. Steve, thanks so much for taking the time. Really enjoyed it. No, it's an honor. Thanks
0: for having me. Before we get going, I'd like to invite you to join the Capital Allocators Think Tank, a premium content subscription service where you can discuss each episode with me and the guests alongside allocators of sizable pools of capital. You'll also gain access to the library of transcripts of past episodes. Visit CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com and click the premium content button to sign up for either a corporate or individual membership.